Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. What a uh, tremendous atmosphere is here tonight. And word of God, I was like, Fred, you know, uh, we're sitting there listening to music and we were thrown back to 1978 Santana there just for a second. Uh, but um, snapped out of it. And uh, here we are uh, saying in our right mind. First Samuel 24. Uh, I want to go to the Word of God and have felt for some time, going back several months, that I wanted to preach on this. I didn't know I would be preaching conference here or when, but I did know that if the opportunity arose, I knew exactly what I felt God wanted me to preach on. And I don't know how it's going to come out as far as delivery, but I do know that I have the mind of God. And so I'll leave that to what the Holy Spirit wants to say. One of the major issues in our world today is the issue of climate change. We're hearing a lot about that. There's a raging uh, debate of whether it is real or it is imagined. Let me go on record and say it is real. The Bible says the earth will melt with fervent heat. And so I do believe that our world is going to get warmer. Amen. Uh, the second debate is whether it is man-made or it is the course of nature. Well, in one sense, it is man-made because sin is polluting the world. Uh, but, you know, I don't really want to go there, but I want to talk about another form of climate change tonight. My issue this evening is not whether or not the polar uh, caps are going to melt or, or whether or not icebergs uh, are melting or our coastal cities are going to become inundated. Um, I, you know, we live that where every time there's an event, uh, there the radical environmentalists want to spin it a certain way, and so I'm not here to debate tonight uh, global warming with you uh, this evening, but I want to talk about another climate change, um, and that is a climate change that's taking place within the church. As I'm going to pick up where Pastor Stevens uh, left off so powerfully this morning, and I, uh, many of the pastors here no doubt uh, used the uh, recent uh, uh, study by George Barna on Christian youth. And their perceptions of the church, it was a real eye-opener um, in this study of Christian youth. Um, 80% said that the church is anti-gay. 52% said Christianity is too judgmental. 47% declared it is hypocritical. Um, and a majority of young people said that too much is said about sex uh, and not enough about poverty. And I could go on and on, but uh, what this study represented is there is a climate change in the church. The church, beloved, is uh, uh, no longer uh, a church that is holy. It is a church that is uh, thinking we're going to win the world by acting like the world. I was preaching in Central California a couple of months ago, and uh, uh, Yolanda and I are driving through Fresno, and we saw a billboard, and this billboard... Uh, is a, 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 an arm, like a short sleeve t-shirt, uh, and an arm covered uh, all the way down with tattoos, uh, holding a Bible, uh, and then uh, all it said was Celebration Church. And the message was clear, and that was uh, that we're the cool church. That somehow, unless you've got tattoos uh, and that uh, you're pierced uh, and you're walking around like a walking jewelry store, uh, that somehow, uh, you know, you're out of touch and uh, uh, you're wearing a tie, you know, uh, and dressing decently. You're just religious. I want to preach tonight on personal holiness. I'm going to talk to you this evening about being holy this week while we're here in California. They're starting to marry homosexuals. No wonder the Lakers got whooped. First Samuel, First Samuel 24. And I was hoping they'd lose last night just so I could say that. All right, I feel better now. Verse 1, it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told them, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. 
David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him. The King James says David's heart smote him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he is the anointed of the Lord. Verse 7 says, So David restrained his servants with these uh, words, uh, and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went his way. And then one other verse, verse 20. Saul is talking to David and says, And now I know indeed you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Father, I pray tonight for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would bypass, oh God, all the exterior and the formality and the pageantry. God, you'd reach down and access the hearts of men and women. And God, I pray that in your presence you birth in us your divine nature, oh God, to be holy. We ask this in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, Amen. I want to talk to you, first of all, about um, the dilemma. Now, let's look at our text this evening because it illustrates a very powerful truth. You know, men are coming to Bible conference, pastors, disciples, uh, seeking a word from God. And indeed, we have received already very powerfully from God. Um, we want spiritual power and spiritual blessing. Um, then I want you to take notice um, of these two men. One is David. At this time, David is a man that is on the bottom. He is a fugitive. He is a runaway. He is a man that has reached a pinnacle of success um, only to be falsely accused. Um, he is now a fugitive in the land. Um, he has nowhere to lay his head. Um, and he is in the wilderness of, of Engedi trying uh, to somehow escape um, the hand of the king. Uh, there is nobody in all the land of Israel, beloved, uh, who is more despised uh, and more hated and more wanted uh, than David. And then on the other hand, we have King Saul. He is the man that is on the top. He has a powerful kingdom. He has 3,000 select soldiers at his side. Um, and they're out and they're seeking David. Um, and yet we all know the story, beloved. Uh, when it ends, David will be on top. Um, and Saul will end up on the bottom. Uh, and may I say to you tonight, it does not matter where you are presently. It does not matter what station you're at, whether tonight you are riding high or maybe you drag yourself into this conference and you feel like the lowest person here. I declare to you, beloved, the decisions these men made determine the outcome. Your present circumstance, your present station tonight doesn't determine what your destiny is going to be. There's something more important than your present circumstances. And it is this encounter, beloved, uh, probably more than any other, this exchange between David and Saul uh, that determines or reveals the destinies uh, and the outcome of these men's lives. Uh, the Bible says that Saul, as he is pursuing David, uh, comes to a cave uh, and he has to go to the bathroom. Uh, and so uh, he goes into this cave, the Bible says, to attend to his needs. That's a polite way of saying he had to go to the bathroom. He walks into this cave not realizing uh, that in the recesses of this cave are David uh, and his mighty men hiding from him. As he is attending to his needs, uh, David sees this um, and, uh, beloved, uh, everything externally uh, uh, said to him, it would be completely acceptable for you to kill King Saul. Every external motivation was there. He had a, 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 a social motivation. All of his men are saying to him, kill him. Go ahead and kill him, David. Take care of him. Everybody around David says, this is acceptable behavior. There was a logic motivation. If I don't kill him, he's going to kill me. 
This is self-defense. I didn't start this war, but I can end this war. And so logic said, go ahead and kill him. Not only that, there was a theological argument to kill Saul. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. God has allowed for this to happen. Go ahead and kill David. Go ahead and kill Saul. You can do it. And beloved, everything on the outside, logically, theologically, socially said, it's okay to kill the king. But something on the inside of David said, no. Something internal. Something inside of his heart said, uh, I can't do it. Uh, And so the Bible says, even cutting off a little bit of Saul's robe, uh, immediately his heart smites him. Uh, He's troubled. Uh, He feels guilty. Uh, His conscience uh, is uh, stirred up. Uh, And David uh, pulls back uh, and says, I cannot do this. What is that quality tonight that would cause a man when every Eternal feature said yes to say no. I declare to you it is personal holiness. There's something on the inside. A desire to do right from within. We know that holiness is a testimony of a God who is whole and complete in himself. And that holiness by definition is when men care seek to carry out and represent in their lives the righteousness of God in their behavior. And David had something on the inside that would say no when everybody and everything said yes. I am talking about a quality of holiness uh, in in a man or a woman's life uh, that rules their life, uh, not rules and regulations and standards. What makes Joseph reject Potiphar's wife? The Bible says she was careful to send everybody out of the house. There's no onlookers. There's nobody that's going to know. And as this woman begins to seduce this young man, something in Joseph, when all the externals said yes, said no. What is it that causes uh, Daniel uh, when uh, they're going to inculcate him into Babylon uh, and they present him with all the food and all the diet of Babylon uh, and even his own Jewish peers are so agreeable? uh, What is it that causes Daniel to say no? No, I don't care that others are doing it. It doesn't matter to me that this is acceptable and my Jewish peers uh, are looking at me saying, we don't see anything wrong with this. Personal holiness. That's able to say no when everything around you, yea, even religious friends, even our quote Christian friends, say it's okay. Are you with me tonight? I have a very good friend who got saved. He was a uh, paratrooper, had a radical conversion experience. And, uh, and, you know, he told me that when he got saved, uh, you know, he made the first church that he went to was just kind of a, a popular church, very carnal church. The pastor was always using movie and television uh, uh, things that he'd seen as his illustrations. And, uh, and so on New Year's Eve, he's only been saved a couple of weeks. Uh, and so uh, some of the guys in the barracks want to go to New Orleans for, uh, for New Year's Eve. These are his only friends, you know, and so he goes uh, there, uh, and they go off to a club, uh, New Year's Eve, only been saved two weeks, um, uh, goes to a flaky church where nothing's ever been said about holiness, uh, and he's in there, and immediately the Spirit of God says, no. You have no business. How many would agree tonight that Christians have no business going to dances and clubs and the prom? And so there's something in this guy. He has no external. There's nobody telling him this is wrong. But he's there. But God is saying no. He told me he went up to his friends and said, got to get me out of here. I'm going to become a Christian. I don't belong here. And I say, hey, dude, tough. Uh, you're here. Um, the barracks was 60 miles away. Uh, and so he said, I'm walking. Um, in the middle of December 31st, uh, he gets out, gets on the highway and begins attempting to walk 60 miles back to the base uh, because it was better to stand in the cold than to be in the club if you're a Christian. His friends felt so bad, they finally came and picked him up. What is that? That's called personal holiness. And you know what, church? Let's be honest. 
the world is encroaching on our churches. Now, it's easy for me to stand here and talk about those churches. Let's talk about our churches tonight. I have the privilege of preaching many places in the world. And I want to tell you that you and I are facing a crisis tonight in our churches, if we're honest. And that is a crisis of holiness. Personal holiness. I want to give you a few reasons why. Number one is the second law of thermodynamics is that things go from hot to cold. And what we have is the cooling of the saints. One of the things that we have to deal with in our churches, beloved, is the fact that people who have been saved for many years uh, sometimes uh, are no longer uh, living at a level of holiness that they once lived at. They're no longer uh, as devoted, as dedicated. They're no longer as separated, if we can use that word. They have permitted things in their home and in their lives that they would have never dreamed of if you'd have told them 20 years ago. This is what you're They would have thrown you out of the house. Now, if you try to confront them about the things they're doing, they'll throw you out of their house. We can call this maturity. We can call this balance. I call it compromise. And so what happens is people, you know, well, you know, I, I, I used to be like that. I used to do, I know what you're saying. I used to say that. I know you used to say that. Added that as a second phenomenon, beloved, which is the second generation. The book of Judges warned that a generation came, the grandchildren of Joshua, the Bible says, that came, uh, and they didn't know the Lord, nor yet the works He had done for Israel. Uh, and the challenge, beloved, is that uh, in our churches, we have many young people uh, who have lived very sheltered lives. Thank God, that is our job. We have sought to protect them from the world. Uh, we have hid them in the house of God, uh, beloved, uh, and God has helped us. Uh, but the problem, uh, listen to me, young man, young woman, because I'm preaching to you tonight, uh, is because uh, you were sheltered uh, from the world. Uh, you don't understand how dangerous the world is. And so uh, you look at our commitments uh, and you look at our standards and you look at our devotions uh, and you think uh, and you look at them and there's rules to you. They're just, uh, you know, little ordinances that we have over at the door and at the potter's house that are kind of stupid. And, uh, you know, uh, that they, they don't really make sense to you. You kind of roll your eyes at them uh, because you don't have a clue uh, how sharp the predator's teeth are. Many of us came out of the world. I was a sinner before I got saved. I had given myself to sin. I had a healthy fear of sin. I had a healthy fear of what I could be. The problem today uh, is we have young people that have a curiosity about the world uh, and a naivete about the world. So you just kind of uh, 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 flirt with it, toy with it, curious about it. Because you don't get it. And they fill our churches, beloved. They've never smoked and drank. They've never done those things, uh, but they've seen them on movies all the time. And they're fascinated by it. I want to tell you, we're not careful. Cooling saints... And second-generation kids who are curious about the world will outnumber converts in our churches. And as Pastor Stevens preached this morning, you know, we, we didn't talk because uh, I didn't want him to rip my sermon off. But, uh, you know, he hit it right on the head. You know what? It changes the climate of the church. Good test about the quality and the environment of your church is what are your new converts like? Do you new converts come into your church and they immediately get convicted about shacking up and want to get married? They come into your church and within a few months uh, they want to toss their television. They want to begin to separate from the world. Uh, or can they sit there for a year and because of the climate, don't even step, they don't even cross their mind. Because something's wrong with the culture. There's a third reason tonight, and that is Technology. Listen, I am not Amish. I am not a Luddite who fears technology. 
But I want to tell you, beloved, let's, let's deal with realities here. Amen. I'm not preaching theory tonight. Let's, let's preach to real people who live in a real world. And in the world that we live in, modern media has given the average man or woman far more access to the world than ever before. And the world far more access to you. Whether we're talking, beloved, about, uh, you know, the satellite televisions that can have, uh, uh, you know, 180 channels um, or DVDs um, or Internet, um, cell phone technology, a host of other mediums uh, where you can get a little memory stick and you can just walk around uh, and store movies on it uh, and, stay and everything else. And what's scary, beloved, uh, is uh, in our churches today are people uh, who, uh, you know, you, you expose to the world, but you're totally compliant to the, quote, standards of your ministry, all the while watching the YouTube movies and uh, everything else under the sun uh, and compliant. Because the world has now got access as never before. When we got, we got saved back in the 70s, there were three stations plus Channel 11. There was no such thing as video or VCR or anything. That was it. And I mean to tell you, Pastor Mitchell would come and preach on, you know, and, and on television, you know, and we were at the altar and everything. I want to tell you, there's access out there. And the result, beloved, is that there's an encroaching. And the point I want to make to you is unless you have something in you, Unless there's something in you, it will swallow you up. I want to talk to you about what personal holiness really is. Now, please understand, I am not preaching a, advocating a holiness movement. The problem is that religion has taken good Bible words and has captured them or taken them hostage. In fact, when I said I was preaching on holiness, some of you said, oh, no. Because your association with the word comes from holiness churches that are noted for their strict dress codes, sour spirit, and judgmental ways. Over the years, we have fought many a battle with the holiness church. I remember being in Vegas, Las Vegas, New Mexico. I was over at Yolanda and I first went back in 1983. And uh, we had a tremendous time there, a tremendous revival. I remember uh, a season where many uh, uh, people were coming in and getting saved, uh, a lot of young people, a lot of young converts. And, and I, I, I don't remember, it was a Wednesday night service, um, and I don't remember what was preached, but I remember we had the altar sealed. Lots of young people, early 20s, teenagers are at the altar. Uh, and I remember there was some guy sitting in the back with his arms crossed, uh, hunched over, uh, just kind of scowling uh, at everything that was going on. Um, and as soon as service was over, I had my eye on him and he came walking up to me. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and he said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, uh. I said, where are you from? I'm from the Apostolic Church. And uh, brother, uh, there's sin in the camp here. There's something wrong with this church. Uh, here are all these young people that have gotten said, what, what, what's wrong with the church? Well, these women here are wearing pants. And what name are these people baptized under? He didn't care at all about what God was doing uh, and the conversions and the tests. He could care less about that. These holiness movements uh, that uh, feature this kind of uh, thing uh, all the time, you know, uh, where you know, these women, uh, they dress, you know, the motivation is to be as ugly as you possibly can. And some are pretty good at it. And, uh, you know, the, that dress, uh, they, they belong, you know, in El Dorado, uh, Texas. Uh, and they've got this whole thing uh, working on them. There are these churches where men have to wear long sleeves uh, because uh, they don't want to expose your elbow. You don't want to cost someone the lust. Listen, I want to tell you, if you lust after elbows, you got bigger problems, man. We have to keep you from the potato display there at the local grocery store. You know, for this sermon, I was going to have Yolanda come in a holy bun, you know. And that is what we think of holiness, isn't it? In fact, some yes way up. When somebody, uh, somebody around you, when you want to uh, flesh out or be worldly, says, I'm not going to do that. You, you treat them like that. Now, listen, I hate to be forced. 
I understand, beloved, that there's something about uh, uh, something being done purely for compliance. It's something that, that, that we hate that. I remember years ago, I came to Tucson and preached uh, one of the uh, uh, anniversaries, 20th, 25th, one of those anniversaries, and it was a Friday night, and I had to race back to San Antonio on Saturday, and my flight took me to Phoenix, Arizona, where I got on the plane, and I was a crowded, it was a Christmas time flight, uh, and I remember getting on the plane there in uh, Phoenix, uh, and uh, you know, I fly enough to where I care about where I sit, God give me an aisle seat. And uh, I'm, I don't know, I got stretched my legs. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on this aisle seat. That was a joke. Thank you for not laughing. Anyway, I've got this aisle seat. I'm sitting there getting ready to leave. Uh, and we're waiting. And on comes the last people uh, on the plane. It's a man, a wife, and a bunch of kids. Uh, and from the first row, you can hear this woman, you know, oh, great. We're not going to even sit together. And, and she's just whining and complaining up all the way up. You know, I'm just ignoring them. Uh, I have my seat. And they come right around me. Uh, and she starts to complain to the, to the, to the uh, flight attendant. I got to sit. We can't sit like this. We can't. We can't be separated. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, ma'am, well, you know, these are assigned seats. And, well, you've got to do She's just going on and on. And I'm sitting there minding my own business. And the woman reached over, uh, hits me in the back and says, he's by himself. Make him move. He's right there. You know, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, no, you didn't. You know, I'm ready to manifest. And then, and that's, no, 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 you're a Christian. Turn the other cheek. Turn to the slide attendant, ma'am, if you need me to move, I'll move. And this lady, not a thank you. Uh, okay, Bob, get the kid, just, you know, and I get up and uh, move around, you know, and she's just uh, oblivious. And then the guy turned to me and said, I'm sorry. And I said, No. I'm sorry. Listen, we don't like to be forced. And there's something about somebody coming and saying, you need to do this and you need to do that. You need to stop. There's something. Hey, you know, get out of my face. Because that is our association with holiness. I bathroom is just going to come and drop the hammer, you know. This is the mentality, beloved, that is there. And I understand what Pastor Stephen said. Very powerful truth, beloved, about the restraints of others. But you know what? I want to tell you something. Uh, unless you have an inner restraint, all you will do is resent others who try to restrain you. But let's go to the other side tonight. Because the problem in the Christian church today is not too many legalists. The problem today is anything goes. This is from the spring issue of Leadership Magazine. Article by the worship pastor at Saddleback Church. This is Rick Warren's church, his worship pastor. Uh, the question was, should talented, unbelieving musicians be allowed to play in the worship team? His answer, yes. While the worship band's primary uh, goal is to facilitate the worship experience, can also be a meaningful way to lead people to Christ from within the band. And so here, here's this church that is uh, the model church. You know, the churches everywhere are modeling this uh, pattern. Uh, uh, talented. Uh, why, why talented? Why is, why is it, well, as long as they're talented, I guess it's okay. Never mind, the Bible says, worship him in the beauty of holiness. But see, this is what, what it, where, where the religious world is now. It's anything goes. Don't tell me anything. Don't judge me, dude. Uh, don't, uh, don't get in my face. Don't call into question my behavior. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is where the church world is today. What is personal holiness? God says, be holy for I am holy. The Bible says, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Who shall abide on his holy mountain? You know what it is? It's a piece of cloth. The Bible says that David 
cuts just a tiny corner of his robe and bam, his heart is smitten. And he feels terrible. He didn't kill Saul. He didn't injure Saul. He didn't nick Saul. He didn't even get close to Saul. But I want to tell you tonight, when you have an internal holiness, the issue is never the big things. It's the little things. Long before you get to the big things, something inside of you uh, he secretly cuts off uh, and that little thing in secret is enough to alarm his soul uh, warn him off uh, warning bells going off don't do it you can always tell tonight when somebody has an internal compass when somebody has beloved uh, a revelation of God and their righteous decisions are coming from the inside because uh, they stop long before they get close to the line. You know, I got people, oh, just tell me what the rules are, Pastor Ruby. I'm just one of those people. Just tell me what the rules are. Just tell me what the standards. Just lay them on me. You know, I don't know why. So you can walk the line? So you can go uh, 65 miles an hour? So you can go right to the boundary. Uh, so you can uh, no, give me the rules so I can find the loopholes. So that I can argue. So that I can make my case. So I can have my justification. So I can sit around and talk about how stupid these rules are. I think they're so silly. Well, the real issue, beloved, is, you know, when something's happening on the inside of you, the rules aren't even an issue. Because something inside of you, long before you even get there, says, stop. David's like, man, what am I doing? Goes way beyond a rule or a standard or even a restraint. Man makes you go with him one mile. Jesus said, go with him two. I want the, what my disciples, I want them to be surpassing. He said to the Pharisees, you're going to exceed their righteousness. Uh, of the Pharisees, to his disciples, you're going to exceed their righteousness. Jesus would make the statement, beloved, if a man, uh, 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 Jesus said these words, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after has already committed adultery in his heart. In other words, Jesus says, listen, long before you get there, long before you ever get there physically, I've got a different internal standard for you. I've got something operating inside of you. I don't even want you to cut the rope. I don't want you to even get close. And the moment you step out, the moment you step out, may God smite your heart. It's amazing to me how many Christians still go to the movies. Still go to the movies and you're so quick. You got an argument, man. You're ready. I got an argument. I've got, I'm going to make my case to you. They're going to tell me what to do. I'm a grown man. I mean, David, just, 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 just a little bit. I better stop. Let me ask you a question tonight. Did you still feel that tension of conviction to stop even when it's still a small thing? Before it's become a big thing? Proverbs 5, 8. Remove your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. This, I, I, it's not just don't fornicate, you know, bro. It's don't even go near the door of her house. Long before you even get there. If anyone comes to you, does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Uh, John is writing about people and their associations with rebels and things like that. And he's saying to them, listen, not long before you open your Bible and have a Bible study, don't even go there. 
You shall not bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it. It is an accursed thing. This will determine where you go, who you hang around with, how you dress. Heard a very interesting statement. They were talking about how in Atlanta, Georgia, they are now paying kids to go to school, $8 an hour. And these are uh, at-risk kids who don't go to class. Um, and so three hours a day, a tutoring program, uh, and they're paying them $8 an hour to give them incentive. And Newt Gingrich is the, the, the one who came up with this nonsense. And, um, and so his daughter is being interviewed on the radio and how this is successful. And she, goes, she has her anecdotal evidence and stuff. And then they interviewed this, uh, this other doctor of education to oppose her. And he made a very profound statement. He said, the problem today is that we have a lot of people who are suffering cultural diabetes. They suffer from cultural diabetes. And the, what he's referring to is that diabetes. Now, in San Antonio, we know all about diabetes. It's the diabetes capital of the world because people eat diabetes pills in, uh, every morning. They're called breakfast tacos. And, and so everybody's got diabetes over there. And what happens with diabetes is your body, uh, your pancreas, no longer uh, 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 puts out the insulin that is necessary to break down sugar in your body. And so everybody's got to take insulin. And uh, when in its worst scenario, worst case scenario, uh, uh, they, they no longer are able to generate anything internally. And so they're relying on externals uh, just to keep them alive. And he says the problem today is we got a lot of people uh, that uh, they have nothing in them. The idea of going to school because you need to uh, give me money. The next time these kids have to go to class, just to go to class, uh, they're going to be expecting $8. They're going to say to the teacher, where's my money? Uh, and I say, we ain't giving you jack. The problem today, beloved, is I'm afraid that we have in the church uh, people uh, who have a spiritual diabetes. They have nothing in them to just want to do right. They come to conference because this is where they come. It's amazing to me how some girls dress and they come to conference. Absolutely stunning how how you how girls can come dressed uh, uh, like hoochies, uh, 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 you know, and they come to the conference uh, and uh, you know some uh, if a woman tells them something they're jealous if a man says something then they're lusting. Oh well, you know, Pastor Ruby, that's just their conviction. No, I suggest to you uh, they have nothing inside of them. They don't get it. Did you hear me tonight? I'm going to stress this tonight. They don't get it. I'm going to the house of God. I'm going to a church. Why am I exposing myself? And the reason they have nothing inside of them, nothing that would maybe look them in the mirror and say, dear God in heaven, why am I dressing like this? It's not even there. There's nothing inside of them. No internal smiting of the heart. And so it's left to everybody else to try to restrain them. We have to be careful that we're not just producing these kind of people, church. Let's talk about contending for holiness and I'll finish. Leadership does play a role. You and I have a responsibility as pastors. I don't care what country you're from. I don't care what, you know, you can't say, well, that's just the way we are in California. Dear God in heaven, California needs something else. They need an option tonight than becoming just like them or looking like them. <laughs> Some say, you're still bitter over the Lakers, aren't you? No, I'm just, I'm just... You know what we need to do? A couple of things. One is we need to preach holiness. Holiness is far more than making rules. It's far more necessary for preachers who will preach righteousness and confront sin in their sermons. Far more than making a rule. We get a lot more mileage uh, out of preaching on things uh, than we do on just instead giving out a list of rules. 
And a preacher's responsibility is to do that. It is preaching that accesses the heart and instructs the mind. Ezekiel 22, her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. He's condemning them uh, because he says, uh, your job is to let people know the difference. The holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean. Your job is to be distinguish things for people. Help them. Instruct them. Minister to them. Oh, beloved, we have to stop as a fellowship. And remember, beloved, we cannot go through 17 conference sermons and they're all about discipleship and world evangelism and ministry mechanics and not hear one sermon on holiness. It was the French historian Alexis de Tocqueville, the quote many of us have used, came to America to understand the Industrial Revolution, and he said, it wasn't until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and her power. America is great because America is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, then America will cease to be great. Are pulpits still aflame with righteousness? We need to preach the blood. We need to preach mercy and compassion. But do our pulpits still preach righteousness and cry out against sin and make our people make decisions? Jonathan Edwards said, I spend the first half hour getting my guns into position in the last 15 minutes firing them. Too many preachers finish without firing a shot. We have a responsibility in a world that is encroaching on our churches. Saints that are cooling. Young people who have this fascination and curiosity with the world. Beloved, when they come and they sit there on our services, we have a responsibility before God to distinguish things for them, to call out against sin, to say, you know what, uh, if you become a YouTube addict, you don't have a TV, but you just go on to YouTube to get all the fair and, ex- uh, hey, you know what, you got a problem. You're in MySpace and Facebook and you've got, and you're just playing these games and you're dabbling uh, on the internet in the chat rooms uh, and, uh, you know, just the advertisements because you won't get a righteous filter. Uh, I mean, somebody's got to say something. You got to preach it. You know what happens, though, if you preach on holiness? You've got to live holy. I can tell you right now, man, there are a lot of preachers that want to say things because then people are going to look at their lives. I saw a whole situation come down where, where the preachers aren't preaching it, uh, and because of it, they're giving some sort of tacit approval. Everybody, this is almost like a conspiracy of silence. Because nobody wants to say anything and everybody's out renting movies. Half the church, man, has got uh, blockbuster cards. And nobody wants to say anything, you know. It's just, it's just all says stay quiet here. Uh, the preacher's job, man, is to preach righteousness. Amen. But if you're going to preach it, you better live it. Terrible thing. Terrible thing. To not be able to preach on something because you could not live in it. I do believe we need to have godly standards. How many would agree with me there should be some level expectation for our pastors? You want us to live holy. You want pastors to live holy. You want your pastors to live at a level above you. There should be Standard for ministry, and we should not be embarrassed about them. We must provide a code of conduct, a level of expectation, guidance with the assumption that people who want to be right, those are merely guidelines. That's all they are. It's not the minimum. I mean, that's not the maximum. That's the minimum. 
that their lifestyle should be far surpassing that. You know what grieves me? I know I gotta hurry along here. You know what really grieves me is when you gotta, you know, uh, you know, run down a situation. You gotta run down uh, because you heard this and because you heard that, uh, and you have to sit down with a grown man and you have to ask him about, did you do this or? This? And, 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 and I hate that. But you know what? If we do not have a standard, and we, and I'm, I'm gonna tell you, I learned something. I have to revisit this every single year. We'll end up just like Saddleback Church, with talented unbelievers. Anything goes. Thor Moreno made a very profound statement in our boot camp, preached there last week. He talked about Daniel's decision for holiness. But he made the statement, he said, that it was Daniel who was able to influence the three others, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's what we need. We need men who will not only stand for righteousness, but then demand righteousness from others. It's fair to say that those three young men may not have followed Daniel unless Daniel had turned to them and said, this is what you need to do. And thus saved them. Did you hear me, Pastor? We have to be able to turn to young men and say, no, this is what you need to do. And thus save them. Because down the road, they'd be confronted by all the force of Nebuchadnezzar. But because of what Daniel had put in them, they were able to stand. You know, well, you know, I'm out of fellowship, you know, so strict and legal. And so you're not going to put it in these men. So down the road, when even greater opposition and temptation is in front of them, they won't know what to do. I, you know what I fear, church? I fear that our 20-year-olds will not be challenged to live the way we were challenged when we were 20 years old. And we will rip them off of something. Not because we were better men 20 years ago, but because this generation of leaders won't challenge them the same way. I thank God for the FDA. I want to make sure my food is good. There was a Mongolian barbecue that we all eat at in San Antonio and went down listening to the radio and they said, and a local restaurant got raided today and shut down. And it turned out to be our restaurant, the Mongolian barbecue. I thank God that we have health standards. I have not been back since they shut it down. My brother-in-law... Mando Enriquez says, Pastor, you ought to go. Even the roaches wear hairnets now. <laughs> Let me close. We talked about finally, beloved. Where does this holiness come from? Nowhere this is what I'm preaching on comes from. It comes from a relationship with God. The reality is that David's early psalms, some of them written on this flight, from Saul is where he found the sensitivity to resist. You get this from God. We have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling or who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, tempted at all points just as we are, yet without sin. But let's not forget our high priest has a breastplate, and that breastplate says holiness to the Lord. And our relationship with God, beloved, makes us holy. Our relationship with God makes us sensitive. Our relationship with God is the very thing that puts in us that, that sensitivity that when we're ready to step out, uh, says, no. I'll say a couple of more things. When we were in California, we got to go to an organic farm. Roland Perez, pastors in Merced, and there was a big farmer, farming uh, industry there. And he took us out to an organic farm, and this is a nut farm, not 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 insane asylum, farms, you know, pistachios and almonds, stuff like that. I've been to the other kind of nut farm up there in Vegas, and uh, 
But here's a very interesting thing. This, this is an organic farm. You know, I got to tell you, when I hear terms like organic, I thought, ah, new age, environmental, tofu eating, you know. You're right, we hear that. And, but I want to tell you, I got a new appreciation for what an organic farm is. Because all that means is that they do it the old way. They don't uh, just spray pesticides. Everything is done individually. The guy told us that it takes 20 men on an organic farm to do what one man does on an, a regular farm. 20 men. We went out, there's these orchards, uh, and uh, there are all these trees and everything, and every single tree has to be handled by an individual. And I could not help but think of our theme and our conference, give it a year. The story of this unfruitful tree and the farmer saying, listen, let me work it. Let me dig about and dung it, give it a year. And, you know, I, we think about it in terms of souls, but I want to tell you, there's such a thing as fruit of the Spirit. And you know what I thought about, beloved? I thought about God, who is an organic farmer, who deals with us hands-on individually and begins to work on us. And I want to tell you, if you let him do that, he's going to talk to you. He's going to deal with you. And the moment you start to step out, the moment you start cutting the rope, you can be sure that he is going to deal with you about your own holiness, your own lifestyle, your own choices, if you will let him put his hand on your life. There's no cookie cutter here, man. He will get a hold of your life. The Bible says that Saul looked at what David did and he said, Now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. He said that, beloved. Not after he killed Goliath. He did not say that after he had slain his ten thousands. He said that to him when he had the ability to stay his hand and stop and say, no, no, God help me. No, I'm not going to do that. And that gave him dominion. Let's bow our heads. No one's moving around. We're waiting on God. See, that's, you know, it's a very powerful thing when you think about it. Because God deals with us individually and uniquely about our lives, which are completely different. The issue tonight is God wants to get a hold of your heart. This world is encroaching on us, folks. Let's be honest tonight. Maybe you're in this building and you're not right with God, friends. Sin has fastened hold of your life. You're filled with guilt and shame. Jesus Christ shed his blood that you might be forgiven tonight. You say, Pastor Ruby, would you pray for me? I'm, I need to be washed in the blood. I need forgiveness. I want to repent. I want to turn from the sin of this world. And I want to turn to Christ and find forgiveness and the power to change.